Welcome to episode 105 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hatfield, and today we have an amazing guest in Simone Brick. Now, Simone is certainly one of the best trail and mountain runners Australia has to offer at the moment, but her story is much bigger than just running. She's uh, come through some incredible trials as a youngster uh, from yeah, large amounts of weight gain and then certainly incredible amounts of weight loss. She's, she's battled some... Uh, significant psychiatric issues and and certainly found herself in and out of institutions and hospitalization as a as a youngster um so we, we get to hear that that amazing story and, and just how courageous simone is and she's managed to sort of battle away out of those situations uh and to become as i said one of one of australia's yeah, best trail and mountain runners um so yeah an incredible story and she certainly takes a very scientific approach to a running, very structured athlete. She's a Salomon-sponsored runner, um, and she's off and about to uh, the Salomon Golden Trail Series this year. Had a crack at that last year as well over in Europe, luckily enough. Um, but yeah, she, she's got an amazing story and some great insights into running, psychology, and life in general. Uh, so well worth a listen, guys. Uh, I'd like to thank our podcast partners, Gaimi Our Health Centre, Basecamp Altitude, Fractel, Goo Energy, Running Matters Coaching, Raid Light, Ranala, Cronulla Beer Co and Coda Nutrition. So don't forget to jump on and check out those websites and our discount codes are in the show notes. Uh, so without further ado, we'll get uh, the flying brick, Simone Brick on and have a chat. Thanks, guys. Okay. Good morning, Simone Brick. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning. I am great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. Congratulations on your uh, your win of the Up on Ascent the weekend before last now. So uh, 42 Ks in three hours, 47. Uh, how, how have you pulled up after that one? Um, overall, I pulled up really well, um, as is the trend for my last few months. A couple of knee niggles, but we're getting through them slowly. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's all being taken care of. And other than that, honestly, the rest of my body pulled up brilliantly i think my knee limited me in the race so mm -hmm. there was a bit of a case of i didn't feel too cooked in any other way by the end yeah so that was good especially pulling back on the downhill stuff coming home i imagine i'll be honest that was the most like pain not painful like my knee actually wasn't that bad which was why the downhill was like annoying because i knew i had a gap um back to the next lady and the two men ahead of me i could see Mm -hmm. and I knew that like I like I was on a downhill smooth gravel descent running like 430 per kilometer going I can go faster and every now and again I'd put in a burst and then go nope suck your ego up you don't need to race them right now you've got big races coming up don't destroy the knee because going a little faster did hurt a little more but it's never the thing with my knee is it's always there but it's never a huge problem like it's not stopping me running so um there was a very much a, a lesson in like control um, and running the last, because the last 10 Ks were all a beautiful smooth downhill off the top of Kosciuszko. So I got to enjoy the views a bit more than I normally do. So that was fun. Just well, that is, that is a bonus. There's people ahead of me that I don't need to chase down. Yeah, nice. Time. <laughs> Parking your ego to the side. That's, that's, a, that's a nice lesson to learn. Um, so I guess in this age of COVID and uh, lots of flooding around Australia, you weren't expecting course changes due to a helicopter crash. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, no, that was a bit unexpected. But at the same time, I feel like the last few years has like um, prepared us for any little change. So I literally woke up the morning of the race and found that. So found out about two hours earlier before the race that it was all like they couldn't do the loop anymore. So we had a lot of out and backs and the course, I think, would have ended up a bit harder because they got all the elevation gain in a shorter period of time. Yeah. And the out and backs were just mentally like, oh, gosh, you're tending me like a mile down some stairs just to come straight back up. So that was fun. But, yeah, definitely unexpected. I like those things, though. I kind of – unexpected things or crap weather and all that, I've always had this mindset that I'm like, sweet, because there'll be someone – like, if especially if it's a super competitive field, like there'll be someone that that rattles and I'm not going to let it be me. Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm better off 
in some ways because like the worst of conditions, the wind, all that sort of stuff. I'm very good, and my coach helps with this because he makes me train in the shittest conditions, um, <laughs> even if it's like early or raining or whatever. But at the same time, it's just learning to relax into it and go, I can perform in anything um, and under any circumstances. So I always look at those as like, cool, another opportunity to sort of adapt on the fly and still do well. Yeah, um, love it. Yeah. More, more glass half full stuff. That's spectacular. And so obviously, Kosciuszko is a fairly uh, hilly part of the world uh, and you're a Melbourne-based athlete typically. Where, where are your mountainous training grounds? I've seen maybe some Grampian stuff or some surf coast trails. Where do you, where do you get out? I've only been to the Grampians once in my life, so not mm. there. Um, that's still very far away. And I must admit, that's probably my biggest struggle at the moment while I try and finish off my degree is I'm a proper flatlander where I live. Um, so I typically um, weekend runs or um, hilly runs, I'll go to Mount Dandenong or um, I haven't been there in a long time and I feel like I need to go back there more often, was Arthur's Seat down in the Mornington Peninsula and... Listerfield, um, King Lake even a couple of times. So like those places are all within like 60 to 90 minutes mm -hmm. um, drive. So pretty much from where I live, I have to drive 60 minutes to get to any sort of decent hill. And even then compared to a lot of the races I then try and do, they're not that good of hill um, or like they're not that steep or they're not that long. But I do also have a brilliant treadmill um, that goes to 40% gradient. So wow. I um, can bust out some good... BK training on a treadmill yeah. um but yeah I kind of do anything and everything possible to make do but also I know the value of be maintaining my ability to run hard and fast for a long time on the flat mm. um it all translates it's all running like I need to keep obviously the hills going especially as the season gets more hilly into the second half of this year um and my races become much more technical um but over summer in particular, and when I'm been even training for Kosciuszko, a lot of my running is just flat road um, and hills on the weekend. Yeah, that's great. It's 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 nice that there is some uh, huge transferability there. Uh, I've seen, I think, a four-hour treadmill session once on your on your feed there. Um, can you talk us through that briefly? Yeah, that was fun. So that wasn't that was it was planned. It was two weeks out from um Kosciuszko and it was a four hour like race effort on a treadmill for gut testing so I was having all sorts of medical testing kind of done um including like my carb oxidation rates uh, my blood glucose my um sweat losses and all that sort of stuff um over a four hour treadmill run where I was putting the treadmill that treadmill I was on at Monash went up to 25 percent which is still damn good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was four hours and I was doing some big climbs during those four hours too. Uh, but that was purely for um, testing how much carbs I need, mm -hmm. um, how much I can absorb, whether I was malabsorbing anything. And good news is that, yeah, I was not malabsorbing any of my tailwinds. So it was all going straight through, straight in um, where I needed it. So that was good. Um, but yeah, that was for future reference for myself in terms mm -hmm. of my fueling, um, my effort and I did also learn that and I didn't necessarily know this before that I'm very good at adjusting my uh, effort to be on the exact same heart rate on the flat as I am on the up um, on different like different no matter what the gradient was they were like my heart rate just stayed because I wasn't looking at it but they're like your heart rate was steady the whole time no matter what mm. gradient or stuff I was on so that's always good info to have that that's in tune for myself and that's the key isn't it Ultra, yeah. ultra distance running if you can stay in that sort of flat line as far as heart rate is concerned then yeah you're not buffering you know lactate at any yeah. stage uh, it's a yeah. it's a useful right. thing to have uh, we, we've yeah, just done some testing with our i guess those sorts of things um looking at sweat rate and those sorts of bits and pieces do you mind sharing your, your numbers of uh carbohydrate intake for the hour over that test uh yeah yeah um what 60 grams per hour yeah um, and that seems plenty for me yeah um and i was my lactate wasn't going up at all and i was happily holding about 80 percent max heart rate mm -hmm. um for the four hours and then i do sweat a lot i learned which i didn't think i did because i'm a bit of an odd one in that i never get thirsty well i almost never get thirsty during runs mm -hmm. um so i have to like force myself to drink but 
despite not getting thirsty, I lost 5% of my body weight and they calculated my sweat losses at like 1.3 liters per hour. Per hour. Um, and I don't get anywhere near that much back in. So, and I got more in during that test than I normally do in a run. So, yeah. Um, yeah, they were the main things. And then my carb oxidation rate, I haven't seen the exact numbers yet because the report's yet to be sent. But um, I know my carb oxidation rate was good um, at a high level the whole time. So mm-hmm. I was getting through and I was burning what I needed to. And yeah, no malabsorption. Right. It's great to know those numbers. That uh, makes uh, race nutrition so much easier for the future. Oh, that's yeah. Awesome. yeah. That's awesome. You know, you know you're doing the right thing at least. So the numbers account. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll take take you back a little bit, I think. Um, so I believe you're one of seven kids. So does this competitive streak of yours stem from those early days in the backyard? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the, to add further context to that, I'm the second youngest of seven kids. Um, so, And my younger brother, he's five years younger than me. So for the first five years of my life, I was the baby of the family. Uh. Um, and even then... Yeah, I've got the four closest in age to me are all boys. So I grew up surrounded by my four brothers, mm-hmm. went to primary school with my brothers, like we were all at school at the same time kind of thing. So yeah, I was forever trying to keep up with them. And I've, yeah, I've been competitive for as long as I can remember. But even, and this more and more as you get older, because you know, kids, you don't understand even what you're doing, but I'm competitive with myself more than anything else. It's just that knowledge of going, no, I can do better. Um, and I find that then you can use up, you can use the people around you to then like, if you switch on the competitive mindset with them during races and stuff to get more out of yourself. But at the end of the day, it's a, I'm extremely competitive with the inner me, um, and the past me of proving that I can do more. So, yeah, I love that. And I've heard you speak about just, uh, wanting to do something each day that makes you better. So I guess that's sort of driven by that yeah, internal competition all the time. Yeah. yeah, and it's like I don't, I don't, and like my brain doesn't wrap around the whole idea of like having someone, just another person that I continuously want to beat because for me that person is myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I've gotten a lot better over the years at just being incredibly happy if I get to a finish line or the finish of anything I do in life knowing that that was my best, um, mm-hmm. no matter where that gets me compared yeah. to other people. So it's a much, uh, smoother or like it, it's it's a good way to be because i celebrate a lot more now <laughs> yeah and, and it seems to be more pervasive across uh trail running mountain running to be honest uh, than than sort of the road and the track stuff there it seems to be more of a you know, internal gratification rather than uh racing per se there um and, and yeah. i suppose it it sort of harks back to your days prior to competitive running and, and, and i'd like if you wouldn't mind just to to detail um i guess just just what, what you'd been through in the maybe you know five or six years prior to starting um that that competitive running 2015 because it certainly was a, uh, a a more difficult journey than any ultra that you're going to uh, partake in <laughs> yeah and i suppose that's the perspective it still gives me to this day is the fact that just running is not hard no matter how long i'm running for no matter how much objectively like it physically is painful it's not painful like that's not pain to me so um, compared to where I've been, but essentially like where I am today still blows my mind like every day. Um, but it's just, I struggled with mental health my entire childhood. Um, and that all came to a head. Well, I was, I grew up like my memory of myself growing up is I was incredibly sporty, loved all the teen sports and stuff, but I could not run to save myself. And part of the reason for that is it was not enjoyable because I was very overweight um, so I was larger than anyone around me. And, it, well, it always felt that way. I'm sure that my egotistical brain of a, of a teenager um, puts a bit of mayo on that. But at the same time, it's how I felt at the time. Um, and then that did lead to me pretty much not doing too much sport at all when I was leaving school, um, that 18, 19, that fun period of life right there. Um, and I then made the decision that... So I... I capped out at like 96 kilos which is like a lot more than I currently am um and was then at the point where the doctors were like yeah okay you're not healthy you're asthmatic you're can't get up the stairs even properly and you need to lose some weight um and at that point in time no one knew that it was all stemming well my 
people knew that I'd had depression, like when I was younger and I had anxiety and I had a few little things, but no one knew the extent of how much I was mentally struggling and how much that my physical appearance was a manifestation of that plus undiagnosed, which was only diagnosed two years ago, PCOS, um, which messes with everything. But yeah, essentially I decided I was going to try and get my life in order and in doing that, tried to lose weight in the 19-year-old way of just stopping eating, um, which or 18-year-old at the time, and I thought it was a great idea. The scientific brain in my head just went, sweet, okay, it's all an equation, less in equals less to, for my body to fuel, and then I'll lose the weight, and it worked for about six months, and I lost, I think it was eight, in eight months, I lost 50 kilos, which is mm -hmm. not smart. No one should ever do that. Your body but, doesn't like it. So from um, 96 kilos, 50 kilos dropped in eight months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so and by that point, though, by the point I was at my lowest weight, I was already in treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so after losing the first 30 kilos very, very quickly, um, I ended up in hospital. Um, so that the malnutrition, it's amazing what malnutrition does to the human brain. It's honestly like you cannot think straight. Um, and then once you get that, I, I the only way I know how to refer to it is that anorexia, anorexic voice or um, eating disorder voice in your head. It's very hard to combat when you're not eating enough. And so mm -hmm. you don't have the fuel in the brain to actually fight back at all. So I ended up yeah in hospital not long after, and that was the first hospital was just because of this. It was because of a suicide attempt, not because of the eating disorder. But that's where I feel like I started getting taken a little bit more seriously because, as much as I'd lost a lot of weight, I was still technically a healthy weight. So I was kind of turned away from all help with my mm. eating disorder because my BMI was normal. Um, which absolutely to this day still does my head in and it is getting a little better. But I essentially, I still remember the day I was sitting in a hospital bed after they've got my heart back in order. I'd spent a week in a um, acute cardiac unit because I'd put my heart into a whole lot of stress. And um, then, yeah, the doctor's sitting beside the bed saying, your BMI is too high for the eating disorder ward. Mm -hmm. So um, that was fun. That resulted in me just obviously losing more weight and deciding that fine, I'm too, like in my head, I, I heard that as you're too fat for an eating disorder ward at the time. Um, obviously wasn't thinking straight again, but um, then I ended up in Butterfly, um, Butterfly House, which is a beautiful program. Um, it's had to change more recently just because of the demand versus the amount of people they can have because they can only have 12 people in at a time. And I know the waiting list was often six months to a year. Um, I don't know, like this is one of the moments where I consider myself just insanely lucky that I live in the catchment area for the exact program. Like this is a program where people were traveling interstate to come live to attend this program. And I just happened to live in the area, which meant I'd kind of jumped the queue because they let people in from the area first. So I only took two months to get into the program spent eight months there and it's honestly the most valuable eight months of my life I think because I learned so much about myself like this is a program where they don't just refeed you and help you gain weight but you have like self-identity classes classes on interpersonal relationships classes on goal building and all sorts of things around the actual physical th need to get more fuel in um, so that was beautiful and that was I left there kind of on a high um, but then the problem was that they hadn't addressed any of the mental problems that had caused the eating disorder in the first place. So I, the next two years after that were a ride um, and a half. So I thought that like it was all just going to go up from there. Like I left with like the rose-coloured glasses of going, sweet, I've tackled that. It's going to be a bit of a journey to keep tackling it, but I'm good. And I was not good. Um, it only took a couple of months for me to then land myself living on a psych ward for anywhere from set two weeks to two months at a time mm. um i would end up i would be in hospital and i would be even more lost than i previously was uh, the eating disorder i actually did pretty well with not relapsing with but i was not okay in terms of just my i there was times it was just pure depression and i wouldn't get out of bed i wouldn't shower for two weeks i wouldn't do a thing um, and then there was other times it was more 
um, I had dissociative, I developed, sorry, I developed dissociative disorder. So I would lose patches of time. I would lose the ability to know what I was doing. Um, and at like, it, there was a lot of other I, diagnoses at the time, but unfortunately my psych that I had for a while there just threw more and more medication at me, mm. um, which I see now was not the right move. Um, and I finally, it came to a head when I developed psychosis. Um, and I, look, I remember little bits, but I feel for my family because they would remember more um, than I do. But I ended up on a high dependency unit, which is kind of like the um, ICU of mental health wards um, in Dandenong. And yeah, I was at, like, I had all these delusions. I thought that like flowers and the little things that float in the air, I thought there were cameras. I thought people could hear my thoughts. So I stopped talking because I thought that you can hear me anyway, just by thinking. Mm. Um, so yeah, I honestly like, and it's still kind of, that period of my life is still my reminder today that that can happen to anyone and it can happen to me again. And it can, it's not in no way is it a weakness. It was a storm of events that, and then my brain could not cope anymore. Mm. Um, so it found other ways to make its way through life and they weren't all conventional and they weren't normal and they weren't healthy and I needed I was incredibly reliant on everyone around me to keep me alive as much as healthy. And like, I wasn't healthy, but it was, yeah, just a battle, um, all that battle for about two years there, um, mm. that ended in me, um, finding a new psych, <laughs> um, eventually once I'd come, once I come out of that acute psychotic episode, I kind of had, I had one moment where I sat with my psych at the time and, was kind of given my prognosis speech of, so this is your life now. Um, this is the prognosis of someone that's had this early in life psychosis to this degree and the medications aren't working and set kind of saying that I was going to be reliant on institutions for the rest of my life and it was very likely to happen again. And that essentially like the, the way I was hearing what he was saying and the way he was putting it across was that I was kind of destined to just be sick the rest of my life and mm -hmm. this was it. Um, and I was too far gone um, to sort of help anymore. And I had one very lucid moment in that room with him because I was, uh, for some reason, normally mum attends appointments with, attended points with, appointments with me at that point in time, but I was by myself. Um, and I just remember having this lucid moment of going, how dare you? I'm 20 years old. Like, how could you sit in front of me and tell me I'm done? So that was then my moment of going, I wanna to prove to you that I can get better so that I can prove to every single other person that sits here and hears this, that they can too. Because the only reason, I, the way I read the situation was the only reason he was telling me I couldn't get better is because he'd never seen someone do it before. He'd never seen someone go from where I was and how, like my life was an absolute mess. It was from hospital to hospital to, I see you to like my self-harm was out of control and nothing was okay. And just because he hadn't seen someone go from my situation to living that awesome, fulfilled, healthy life, he sort of then was, I was then just told, okay, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And I was like, nah, no, no, no. Like I made it in a way, my mission to fight back and go, I want to be the one that proves it is because I want, and to be honest, it wasn't even for myself. At that point in time, I struggled to do anything for myself. But the thought that I had a lot of friends in the same hospital, I had a lot of friends having the same struggles. And I was like, there's no, I want them to know that they can. And therefore, if I do this, and if I like find a way, I don't care where the way takes me, I'm going to find a way to get better, to get my life back on track and actually do something meaningful with my life afterwards, then I can prove to them that they can too. Mm. and be that example because all and in this is in every area of life all we need as humans to prove that something's capable is for someone to get even close to it and for mm. another human to be that example of going no we're, we're going to get there we're almost there or we can do this and prove that first and that's in so many different endeavors in life and mm. for me at that point in time it was just proving that yes okay right now i'm stuck in the middle of psychosis depression anxiety I've had my body is an absolute wreck and but that doesn't mean that my future needs to be the same and that was the first time 
I think I'd spoken I'd spoken to myself in my head that way of going no 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 the future's going to be better whereas prior to that it was always this isn't worth it like if my life's going to be like this it's just not worth it so mm. I'm very thankful that that day that's the way my brain went because um, it could have gone very differently but something in me fought back um, and it was not smooth sailing from there by any means because I changed sykes. Um, he got me off all my medications. I was weaned off everything in a hosp in hospital again, but a different one. Spent two months there, and I did. I had, I, while there, I still had another serious suicide attempt. Like that came after all of that. Like it was still so much downwards, but I was fighting damn hard. Um, and then I ended up having ECT, so ECT electroconvulsive therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where they kind of shock your brain. The coolest therapy, if you ask me, because no one knows how it works to this day. So much research has been done on it. It's used all the time, but they still don't know how exactly it fixes things. But it does. And it did a great job for me too. Um, it doesn't last forever. So I had, over the course of two years, I had three rounds of it um, over the next two years. But there was also a number of other things that came into my life at that point one of them being running, um, that I kind of had the moment of deciding that, okay, I've done, I've gotten through all this. I'm further along than I ever thought I would be. What is the hardest thing that a human can physically ever do? And I had never broached into the endurance world, the survival world of anything. So in my head, I'm like, that's run a marathon. That's literally the hardest thing we're capable of. Um, so yeah. I was a little bit naive on that front. But at the same time, that then led to me training for a marathon. I was like, screw mm. it. Okay, if I can do what I've already done with my life and get through that, I can damn well get through a marathon. Um, and that's when I started running. And my training was insane. It was not normal. Um, it was like just random runs. And I was still struggling at times. And so there was definitely days where it was just a case of do what I can when I can, there was some mm. one kilometer runs going on. There was some days where I was like planning to do six and all of a sudden I'm like, today is one day that I happen to feel good. So I'd go longer, but I called that my depression training plan because you never know when you're gonna wake up and actually feel like you can run. But I made the most of the days I could and I learned to be gentle with myself on the days I couldn't um, and I got there. And that was the start of this whole running debacle because lo and behold I that first marathon I managed to win yeah. so it was a small marathon I'm not about to say that I did an amazingly good job but um baby little marathon and all of a sudden I found myself at the front and I found myself winning and therefore it was just that thing light in your brain that goes hang on here's something I can do mm -hmm. like it's I had not not much else going I wasn't doing I was back studying a little bit, but I wasn't doing much else. And I was used to days of just trying to fill the time. And so I was building my day around my run um, for the most part. And then to learn that I wasn't too bad at it um, was pretty cool at the time. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice professional athlete lifestyle, just structuring the day around the run. I like that. Um, <laughs> so in, initially when I guess you signed up for marathon and you started running, did, did it feel like the right thing to do initially? Like intuitively, did it feel like it was helping to get out for that one or two K run, I guess, mentally at first? Yes. Well, because um, growing up, I'd been incredibly sporty and active. Um, I had a short stint of trying to run when I first tried to um, lose weight. But that was obviously when you're trying to run, that didn't last too long. And when you're trying to run and you are as overweight as I was, it was incredibly painful mm -hmm. um, and just a hard process. Um, but then what was also going on was that I was missing, like I, I literally grew up every single day I'd play a different sport. Like I was always active. The only time I felt myself and I felt like happy to the most part was when I was being active. Like I absolutely loved it. But then I found that with all my mental health struggles, I really struggled being around groups. So I loved my soccer team at the time. I was still playing soccer. Um, and I would kind of be the... I would appear at some games and then not be at, not appear at others and that sort of thing just to keep me going. But they were beautiful, but I also still found that the whole process of playing in a team, having other people relying on me and that sort of thing, or just being around other people was incredibly anxiety provoking. And so when I started running, like the first run I ever did, um, and probably why I also thought of the marathon was from the hospital. 
Like I had, there was the first, well, I say the first run I ever did. The first run I'd done in a couple of years um, at, since I was overweight and all that sort of stuff. Like the first run I did on this whole journey was I was in hospital. I'd been in hospital for seven weeks. They finally, I'd been granted privileges to go for a walk. So we're, you're always on different levels of privilege, how, how monitored you were and stuff. And I'd been there for seven weeks. I was finally allowed to go out for 10 minute walk. I step out the door and I just run. Um, now, <laughs> normally I'd done that before, but it was just trying to run away from the place. Um, this time it was just to move because I felt so cooped up in the mm. hospital. I'd literally been pretty much in, like we, they got, we got taken outside and all that sort of thing, but it was most of my day inside in one room for seven weeks. Um, and so, yeah, I just started running and because of the adrenaline, because of everything that was going on at the time, I was able to just run and run and run and run. And I wasn't, I was out way longer than I was supposed to be. So I got in a lot of trouble for that, but I do very much because of the juxtaposition of where I'd been in the hospital and then the freedom of, I was in, I can't even remember where, um, Caulfield or somewhere, but I was running and then I came to a park and running around a park then it was just that, oh my God, I'm free. Like, oh my God, this is like amazing compared to being inside a hospital and that feeling of exhilaration that came mm -hmm. along with it. And so it did begin as just that hunt for that and no way was it easy. Um, there was many, many days where I was like, nah, screw this, I can't do it. There was times where I would like stop running for two weeks and just be like, nah, that, that's done. Um, but I'd always pick it back up because I'd always remember that that was... I didn't have to think about other people. I didn't have to think about anything. I could just move. And that freedom from where I was and the way that my brain then just shut off, like my brain never shuts off unless I'm running. I'm actually really peaceful when I'm running because I don't, I'm not the person that runs to think most of the time. I run to not think. Um, and so that made it easy in many ways. Like it may, even that days it was physically hard, it, over the whole process was so rewarding at the time that it was, I felt such a need to do it. Now I no longer feel it thankfully because it would have been unhealthy if I still felt the need to run. Um, cause it was in like, could have gone down that unhealthy thing of like, could not survive without it. But, um, at the point, that point in time, a hundred percent, it was my therapy. I needed it to get through. The yeah, it's, a, it's a special brand of mindfulness when you're out there. So it's a, it's an interesting experiment in, uh, in that psychology. So I'm, I'm glad it worked so well for you. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to take you to your second marathon. So you, you've run, run your first one on not a lot of knowledge. You've signed up for number two and you've run a 307, which is an incredibly tidy time. And, and I believe with zero calories along the way and about a hundred mils worth of fluid through the marathon. So, I mean, with all these, you know, rookie errors, I guess you'll call them. Did you recognise at this point that you had some serious talents in the endurance game? Um, I'm not sure. I was so naive going to that marathon. I'm not sure I saw it. I definitely didn't see it as serious talent. Mm -hmm. I, In my head, I was like, oh, I can do more. I can do better. But the rookie errors came from the fact that I literally stepped off the line sprinting for me. Like, I've, I'd never run a kilometre faster than four minutes in my entire life up until that point. And my first K, I think, was 4.15. Mm -hmm. So... Like I like, I just went out hard. Um, and managed to be honest, I still to this day I'm surprised I managed to hold on. Um, because you're right, I didn't take on fluid. I, I kind of missed all the drink stations. I picked up one cup and dropped it, and all those sorts of fun things as a newbie. Um, and I also didn't know what pacing was. A few little things helped me along the way because I called out to Dad at 15 kilometers in a big pack of guys, just screamed out at Dad, Dad, this is the fastest I've run 15 k's in my entire life. And the guy next to me just pipes up and goes, oh, you're going to die. <laughs> and I was like, screw you, and like took off. So <laughs> I was, I had a mission. Um, I was also running that run to raise money. So I had a big why. But then I'd, I'd also, it was only six months after I'd had serious, like some major surgery on my stomach. So I know that my prep was hindered. Like I did know this is an example of me competing with myself because I knew where I'd been and I knew that I had a lot more I could have done because I couldn't train anywhere near like what you should for a marathon. Um, but it was at that point that I had a, a local coach from Mentone called Steve Hall, just sort of, I just had a few conversations with him and it helped me out a little bit. Um, but 
as he called it, my training was very non-specific to a marathon. It was just running. Um, and then because of that marathon, I had in my head the day before, the, um, the year before when I won that first marathon, I didn't know Melbourne Marathon existed. I looked it up and I looked at the times and I saw that about a 3.10 or a 3.05 to 3.10 should get you in the top 25 women. Um, and so in my head, I was like, I need to come top 25. I just want to do that. And I'd just run 3.19 at the previous. So I was like, sure, I can take 10 minutes off. That's what happens, right? Um, so then with the surgery and everything, I kind of dialed it back. But then the week before the marathon, no, two weeks before the marathon, I went and raced a 10K, as you do, mm-hmm. and ran a PB. And so then in my head, I'm like, no, nah, screw going for 3.30 because I felt like I was behind where I wanted to be. Let's go for 3.10 again. Um, so I took off way too fast because I took off at like three-hour pace. But I held on. I ran a half marathon PB and then still steamed home. And I suppose that was, looking back now, that was definitely foreshadowing for the fact that I'm much better at endurance than I am at speed. Yeah. Um, and my body somehow survives on very little. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was that run that then made my, got my um, current and only ever other coach's attention of mm-hmm. going, who's this and how did you get up that high in the marathon and why do I not know who you are? Because knowing him now, he knows everyone in the running scene pretty much in Melbourne. So, um yeah, that's definitely Crosby. Tim. Yep. Tim Crosby. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and and I guess what was the first thing that Tim changed in uh in, in your structure there? Uh, there was a bit to well, change, but there was a lot to change. I think I went to him going, sweet, okay, I've heard of these whole things called ultras. I've just run a marathon. The next one's gonna be like 60k. And then we're doing hundred K next year. Like going to him, I wanna do this. And him, the first thing he changed was him going, nah you're at the track this week and you're running a 5k nice um no he put me in a 10k first he's like you're running a 10k because i think one of the first things he said to me um after i met him and we'd done a couple of sessions is if you run a 307 marathon you should you 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 can or you should be able to run a sub 40 minute 10k um and i think my pb for 10k was about 41 20 or something um but i was not yeah i'd i'd never run as i said i didn't run speed work much so I'd never run a kilometre even at four-minute pace, let alone mm-hmm. 10. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that. But he signed me up for a race and went, You're, I'm getting someone to pace you. You're running 40 minutes because you should be able to. So I didn't have the heart to sort of, well, no, yeah, I was so scared of him at that point in time. And so I was like, damn, I've got to prove to you that I can. And to be honest, that 10K, I reckon, was one of the hardest efforts I've ever put in in my life because I thought I was going to die at 8K. But I ran 39.58. Nice. So <laughs> we got there. But... um. That was definitely what he changed, was he changed my entire mindset around, no, you are not going longer and slower. You are going shorter and faster first. It's like 100% I can see that you were good at the endurance and you probably will be good at the endurance, but you're not going to be anywhere near as good if you don't first get better at just speed work, running, learning how to run properly because my running style and form was uh, not strong because I didn't have the strength I do now. Um and he made me do, yeah, 1500s, 3Ks on the track, steeplechases, like all sorts of things that are, yeah, built built me from the ground up rather than letting me go off and jump it. into ultras straight away. Yeah, that's very smart. Get fast while you're young. You've got plenty of time to go longer. That's for, that's for sure. Um, yep. And so, look, only, only three years into this sort of running game since Marathon 1 where uh, we're a Salomon and a Swinto sponsored athlete. Can you can you tell us how how that came about? Ah, uh, yeah, that was an interesting one. So I up and for the first couple of years, I was a regular on the cross country scene, and the uh, I loved steeplechase on the track. Just the fact that it wasn't flat and I got to jump over things was a lot more fun than any other track race. Um, so I just done I just ran my PB at states on the track. Um, of a 1058 steeple um and that was then a week later there was a race at mount warburton called warburton trail fest which i think it was was actually the first one um but there was this thing put out that said that solomon were looking for the next young gun um to join the team so they're looking for a young female um runner to become part of the solomon team and one of the race directors of a race i'd done previously down in the bellary dion he um he contacted Chris Ord, 
who was the race director for Warburton, who then contacted me going, hey, this sponsorship's up for um, up for grabs. Do you want to come run the race and see how you go? Um, and that was a few weeks beforehand, I think. So um, there was me going to Tim going, so I know we're in track season and I've got states coming up, but a week later, can I just have like free reign to go run up and down a mountain for the first time? And he said yes, because he's like, your, your state season's over, your track season's over. So yeah, sure, go. Um, see how you go. And he, I knew he would be interested just to see how I went because I'd never run up a hill that big in my life. I'd never mm. run on the trail other than like gravel beach trail. Um, and so, yeah, I rock up and I drove there on the morning. So it was a 90-minute drive there on the morning and I just remember being – I was covered in like ta- uh, the kinesio tape because I was so scared my quads were going to die <laughs> on the downhill. So I was absolutely covered in kinesio tape. Like I looked so strange. I would bought a pair of trail shoes from a bargain bin that cost me 20 bucks. Um, and then, yep, I rock up and I did my warm up like a, um, like a road runner or a track runner. And so I did like the full warm up and then the strides and the drills and no one else was doing that at the trail. Um, so I was already like, holy moly, this is different. Um, and I also knew that there was a, a good number of good female runners obviously had come along to try and get this sponsorship. So thankfully what worked for me is that in my head, I was like, having been a road runner and never been on the trails before and never been on hills that steep, it's like, it's a running race. We run. And so I died. I don't think I've ever died so much up a hill because I was in my head. I was like, you cannot walk. You can. And if anyone knows Donna Buang, like you climb a thousand meters in 8k, it is steep and it is technical. Um, but I would let myself walk, but I would only ever let myself hike for like eight steps before I started running again. Mm -hmm. So I was cooking myself up the hill for even how I run now. Um, but, I was I ran the whole thing scared. I remember being near the front at the top and I knew that there was only even a few guys ahead of me. I think there was only three guys ahead of me when we got to the top. And in my head, I had imposter syndrome massively because I'm like, someone's going to come past soon. Someone's going to come past soon. But I sprinted down and I, and I still t- say to this day to people that it was 10Ks of downhill running and I fell 15 times. Like I was counting because I was just like, this is ridiculous. Um. And I was full supermaning it down that trail at times. Like I was, I was proper stacking it um, because I was trying to run so fast. But also in my head, I'm a little 23-year-old going, this, there's a contract at the bottom of this. Like that's worth more money than I've ever seen in my life. And it wasn't worth that much. But I think it was valued at five grand to begin with because um, that was all public knowledge to everyone at that point in time. So I was just like, there's $5,000 at the finish line. Run faster, run faster. So I was sprinting and lo and behold, yeah, I got to the finish line first and I think I was fourth overall and the next female was about 10 minutes back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I ran scared for a good reason. Like, I'm glad I got the most out of myself that day. I had a ripper of a run. Um, but I was scared the whole time. And then, yeah, first ever trail run and I'm on the finish line and Solomon hand me a T-shirt and I put on a Solomon T-shirt and take some pictures and... I'm part of Solomon, so... Uh, it's too easy. Fantastic. <laughs> That's some serious motivation. I love it. And, and look, obviously at this point, you know, you realise you had some some talent as a mountain runner. So you, you, you've gone and immersed yourself in Australian mountain running competition and uh, yeah, ended up ended up overseas a couple of times for the World Championships. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, that, that first World Championships then? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was only four weeks after that um, Donna Buang run um, that I won our national championships down in Tassie. Um, and that was another one of like, this was honestly the most, that four weeks was the most wild period of my life, I reckon, because my head was like, what am I doing and where am I? Um, but then, yeah, I won. And that's obviously auto qualifier for then world champs, which was in September in Andorra that year. Um <laughs> So all of a sudden, within the space of not even kidding, four weeks, I went from having never run on the trails to being a sponsored Solomon athlete that had won national champs and was on my way to Worlds. Um, yeah, that was wild. Mm. That was absolutely next level. So I then put in, yeah, the Andorra was beautiful. I was the only female that ended up going. So there was a um, two or three junior boys and then a men's team, but then I was the only woman. Um, which was unfortunate because I didn't get any of that like team atmosphere going mm. for that one. But um, it was a great experience. It was a hard 
experience and a hard lesson to learn um, because at that point in time, like I got so fit. I was I trained so hard. Everything I did for the 16 weeks leading up to that championship, that um, world champs was like everything was tailored around that championship. And then I had that unfortunate experience of moving into the team hotel three days out and getting very sick um, because I'm celiac. And it was buffet eating. Um, so, yep, hindsight's a beautiful thing where now I bring all my own food if it's buffet eating. Um, but, yeah, I got really sick and I lived sort of in denial for the first, like, for the last two days of going into the race going, no, nah, I'm fit, I'm, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Like, couldn't keep any food down, but I'll totally be fine. Um, and I wasn't fine. But at the same time, I got to learn about perseverance when everything's hitting the fan in that one race that you've worked 16 weeks for. Mm -hmm. Like that's the hardest thing as a runner, I think, especially as endurance or um, marathon runners and that, like you can put in the best 16 weeks of your life and something goes wrong just before race day. Um, so I learned that lesson early. It felt like where it was mm -hmm. like, I was on the start line. It was obvious about two Ks in that I was just not okay. I actually fainted halfway through the race um, I remember hitting the deck and kind of hitting the deck woke me up um, and I made it to the finish line. Like I made it that next 6K, but it was brutal and I was running slower than I ever thought I would. Mm -hmm. But I was still proud when I got to the top because it was everything I had on that day. And I was distraught like I, for the next few weeks. And even now, like there's times I think back on that race and go far out, like that was not okay. Um, and so, yeah, all I remember the day after was just being in tears all day because I was like 16 weeks of work for nothing. But then I learned over time, you learn the fact that one race also doesn't matter. Like one race is just another story along the journey. And there's always going to be another one. And even after injuries and all sorts, like when you're injured, that's okay. Take the time off because there's always going to be another race. And if you take the time off now, you you will make sure that happens as opposed to trying to live through in denial of like, um, yeah, not, and not doing the best path. So that championship was epic for the experience, but mm. not for the race. Um, and then, yeah, the next world champs of the year after was in Argentina. Um, so that was a very different experience, much bigger team. And I was just coming back from my sacral stressy. Um, so I'd only been back running for about eight, nine weeks because um, I started running just before our national championships um, and but that one went completely different because I knew where I was at at the time I knew I wasn't at peak fitness but I did a lot better and I kind of I, rec I ran as best as I was ever going to run at that point in time on that day yep. so that was an awesome experience as much as it was still left me wanting more because I'm like I'm one not at the spot that I would want to be at a world champs right now, but this is the best I've got today. So I, yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling when you get the best out of yourself, you know, that you've got so, on that day. Yeah. Um, so that was, like that was a good one. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing uh, way to think about things too. forget about the numbers and just go internal sort of gratification again. It's good. Um, and, and then look, that, that's 2019. So uh, we've, we've certainly covered the, uh, the punishment that has been the last couple of COVID years in terms of running competitions. So not yep. quite as much going on on the overseas schedule for that period of time for you, but you were lucky enough to sneak over to Europe uh, 2021 last year to, to take part in the Salomon Golden Trail series I believe there are a couple of, I'll call them haters, but heat from the public about you actually being able to head over to Europe at that point in time. Um, can you explain explain what that was like? Um, look, as much as I say I try and sort of forget about it because I, I was, I, I, I very much love to live by that whole, like there's the five people that you trust most and trust their opinion and no one else's. Um, and that was all well and good. But yeah, it was, it was a, just such a tumultuous time for everyone and I 100% I I kind of hated the fact that I could go and people that I thought were in many ways morally more deserving and needed to go couldn't but I also was in that position of going I don't get to decide what the government decides is worthwhile and is not like I'm not the one making the decisions here I've been granted the opportunity that I've been working for for so long like I feel like even saying no is then going like what like what who wins there 
um, kind of thing. And so, yeah, there was definitely that whole questioning of like, why are athletes allowed to travel overseas um, and go and run and compete in all these beautiful places and while I'm not allowed to go see my family or this person's really sick but they can't go get the medical treatment that they need overseas or and it was it was completely unfair I like I didn't I understand that and I felt for everyone but yeah it was just that case of me going well but me saying no to this doesn't make it any more fair what's going on and it doesn't fix any sort of situation and I 100% feel for the people that can't make it but I am gonna my the way I'm gonna tackle this is just go I'm going to be incredibly grateful and thankful for this opportunity and I'm going to get the absolute most out of it because mm. that's the only way I can sort of try and make it just go, I'm that worthwhile like for people and just go, I'm not like taking the piss here. I'm not just trying to go on a holiday. I am literally trying to build my running career and mm. it has, it worked. Like it, it's done everything it needed to do. I learned so much and I needed that experience to then work forward in my running career. So, um, yeah, I, like had I been trying to like skirt the system to try and go on a holiday, which I knew many, like I've known of many people that did because they had their own businesses and stuff. So they were able to get over there and just holiday. But I was like, I'm, I'm in no way did I ever treat it like a holiday. So yeah, it was, um, it was good. It like, like that was good. But then the people I felt for, I like, honestly, I didn't, I didn't experience it as hate as much as just, I felt for them. There was only a couple of comments of, people calling me dubiously professional and stuff like that <laughs> saying that I didn't I didn't sort of um irking that I didn't so like, suggesting I didn't deserve because I wasn't tech they didn't think I was professional enough and I'm like okay so what's I don't get the dig here like what's professional yeah. I don't get it that's nah, a ridiculous definition to uh to, to argue about no I'm, I'm I'm really quite impressed that you made it over there it's fantastic and so able to run on some of the most amazing trails in Europe so Zanal, Marathon de Mont Blanc and Dolomites um I guess, how overawed were you by the size of those hills compared to training around sunny Melbourne? I wanted to cry the first time I saw the Dolomites run. Holy moly. It's like 1,700 metres gain in 10K. There's yeah. just nowhere in Oz you're even going to experience that, um, especially on the rocky, crazy terrain that they do and up to like 3,200 metres elevation. Mm. Um, so my mind was blown, I'll admit. Like it was that was out of this world marathon de mont blanc was kind of a good introduction um because as much as the trails were different they were more technical and the climbs were much steeper they weren't the next level that dolomites run is which i'm glad that was the second one um because yeah i do remember the first day i got there and i actually walked hiked the entire course so it's 20k and it took me like six hours to hike this course um and i just remember thinking the whole way around how like, how do I actually do this? And the race was only like six days away. So, <laughs> no, I think I, I was there for two weeks, maybe. Um, but the race was not far away. And I was going, okay, I need to get from complete newbie to somehow able to run down this terrain. Because the upwards kind of is just your VO2. Like, it's just trying to make it up to the top and keep breathing. Um, but the downhill is very, very technical, scary. And I was like, if I try and run, I feel like I'm going to die. Um so mind was definitely blown as an Aussie over there, especially an Aussie that does not live in the mountains, anywhere near the mountains. Like I adore the mountains, but that was my first experience of uh, being in them and going, I have to run this. Yeah. Um, yeah, scary, but awesome. Like I relished the challenge, but it was so scary. That's amazing. That's uh, yeah, certainly a trial by fire there. And uh, so, look, I, I believe you've, you've come come home from Europe uh, with, with some injury there, and, and sort of injured over the summer. Um, I, I guess I just want to quickly touch on what other strategies do you have to maintain, you know, that that, that mental health in good shape uh, when you are injured. I know I know running's a big part for you, but there's got to be some other stuff there. Oh yeah, definitely there is. Um, well, for, thankfully for this injury so far, like it's my ITV and my knee. Um, I said it was all post quarantine, so it wasn't while I was in Europe. Um, in Europe, I completely cooked myself. Like I was mentally and physically done by the start line of Cezanne. Unfortunately, I was just that. I've I've been away for nine weeks, and I was like, yeah, I was so done. <laughs> um, but coming back and then two weeks quarantine off the back of a long haul flight and nine weeks of insane training meant that, yeah, I got out of quarantine and 
started running again and had hip issues and ITB issues and that's then translated to knee issues. But the um, this one I've been able to keep running. Like it's it's not an injury that it's like, okay, take six weeks off, um, which I'm actually pretty good with now as well because that past experience of I let myself sit and go, okay, we've done this before. You got through it last time. And at the end of that, you still went overseas. You still won national championships. You still did all this stuff at the end afterwards. This is going to be the same. So I'll start the whole process of as going, there's going to be a period where you can't do what you want to do, but it's going to then enable you to keep doing what you want to do later if you play this right. So that helps me. But then I really do just dive into other areas of life. So I di- well, I dive into trying to volunteer at all the races I can't race. Mm-hmm. I dive into trying to get my study done a bit more or I have some scrapbooking. And I have a list of things that I've turned to in the past that I know are always sitting there in the background that are sort of the things that I would, that I go, I don't have time to do that because I've got too much training to do or too much, to, like I've got, haven't got enough time. I then look at an injury as going, okay, life's just granted me the time. So I'm going to use that time and go and I'm going to work on other things because thankfully I love study and I love other, like there's other things to life. Yeah. Um, and I've worked very hard over the years on not having, never having my relationship with running one of need anymore. Because it's that realization of I get to run, but I don't need to run. I can be per- like, even if someone told me next year that I had some injury that meant I could never run again, hell, if it was a leg injury, you'd probably find me rowing across the Atlantic or something. Like, I'll find another way to do something awesome. Um, and that's even what I, even if it's a short term injury um, or if it's just a few days I need to take off, I've got a list on my phone of just stuff that I need to do that running doesn't allow when I'm trying to focus on training. I turn to that list and I get shit done. Um, so it's that's probably my number one mental mm-hmm. tactic. But I think the more I invest in just listening to my doctors, listening to other people and going, okay, what's the best course of action? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And then after doing that a couple of times and then you see the process of the going, this works and now I know I can trust other people. It makes it easier every time after that. It's the first time when you fully commit to resting and to listening to doctor's advice and to listening to physio's advice. That first time when you're still a little unsure of if it's going to pay off, that's the hard one. But once you do one, once you do it once and then it pays off and then it's a little easier the next time and then it pays off and then it's a little easier again. So I feel like I'm at the point where now I have a really good relationship with my sports doc and I know if he tells me to stop running, I need to stop running. If he tells me I can keep going at a certain level, I can do it at that level. Um, But I just trust that I'm like, I'm not the expert here on this part of things. So you tell me what to do. I'll follow it and I'll find a way to cope with everything else. Because as everyone always can hear, my brain goes a million miles an hour. Um, (laughs) So um, it's it's interesting trying to keep it in, in rain. But thankfully, study is exhausting. Yeah, so I get to, I get to do that. I like, uh, I like the trust. I like the uh, removing the fear of the unknown there and uh, staying in your lane when it comes to expertise. That's 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 yeah. perfect. <laughs> perfect. I've got a, uh, a listener question that's come in from uh, celebrity Eloise Wellings, actually, and I believe she's oh, a Flow yeah. Revy's ambassador. Um, yep. She wants to know what your caffeine strategy is on race day. Oh, yep. Easy. Like, I love my caffeine. I'm a caffeine fiend, so... Um, I actually have Revy's um, on before the race. So I'll have 15 minutes before. I'll have usually, and this is to be for any race, I'll have this beforehand where I have two of the 100 milligram Revy's. Yeah. Yeah. So 200 milligrams just before the race. Um, I used to have that like an hour before, but now I have it a bit closer. So whatever works on that day, but usually 15 to 20 minutes before. Um, then during the race i have my tailwind which i'll usually keep non-caffeinated but sometimes add in and there's a lot less caffeine in the tailwind um but then my caffeine strategy during the race depends on the race so um something like a short 10k i I won't have anything else but for my longer races i time my caffeine for usually for technical descents 
So if I'm about to do a technical descent, that's where I really need my brain switched on. Mm -hmm. So in the last kilometer of a climb approaching a descent, I'll always have another Revis. Um, or if it's just a super long race, like a 60K or something, I will have one at the 90 minute mark, a Revis at a 90 minute mark and a Revis at three hour mark. So every mm -hmm. 90 minutes, if it's not that technical and that sort of stuff. But races that I know, even if they're, if they're only like two hours, but there's a technical descent, I'll have either the 40, depending on the um, length of the race, but I'll either have the 40 or the 100 milligram about when I know I'm about a K from the technical descent. Because it, it absorbs through your mouth, you get the hit pretty much straight away. Um, mm -hmm. It's what I love about Revis. It's different to when you take it in, in your drink or whatever. That's a slow drip. Um, but the Revis is a straight hit. So, um, yeah, the thing Perfect. I use it for most is descents. Perfect. I love it. Very scientific. It's good. Um, look, I've heard you talk about uh, the incredibly strict conditions you were placed under while hospitalised and covering from the eating disorder stuff. So every calorie was accounted for and uh, uh, and very important. So does this translate to how closely you monitor your nutrition now as an athlete, and particularly on race day? Not at all. I've gone the exact opposite in most ways. I monitor my carb load, but my carb load's the same every time um, before a race. Mm -hmm. Um race day i just know the concentration of tailwind and like i know that that's 60 grams of carbs per hour i try and get in um i know the concentration of tailwind the rest of the time i have a lovely dietitian jess rothwell and she writes me a meal plan it doesn't actually have serving sizes it's just got what meal to eat mm. and i eat um and i think as little about it as possible um i thankfully like the the eating disorder voice kind of i as i worked that out and then like worked on that and then recovered from all the other mental health problems. Like I've never, I, like it's still, I know that it will come back easily if I'm like lacking sleep, lacking nutrition. Like I know that it can definitely return, but also because of that and because of now how much I focus on just looking after my body, I know that I feel best. I run best. I like everything in life is better when I'm not tracking anything. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm just eating what feels good that day. Um, there's a lot of, even in within my meal plan, there's a lot of scope for like, here's a snack, but just your choice on this day and your choice that day or mix these dinners around and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, the less I think about it, the better everything goes. Excellent. Well, we won't talk about it anymore. That's perfect. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of your mental health in general terms, do, do you find you found a healthy balance now? Are you in the right spot? I am. I'm well I am and I'm still working on it mm -hmm. so the most of the troubles I had in the past I like the acute problems like the the depression the anxiety I'm actually not even anywhere near as anxious or anything as I used to be um the one thing I do still struggle with which is a bit of a um sort of thorn in my side in a way but it's just constantly there is PTSD um, so that's the one thing that's sort of caught, not by surprise, but it's still still been there the last few years in particular. So I still see a psych. I still see my um, psychologist every two to three weeks. Mm. And those are brutal. Like my sessions with him, I come away from and only my partner gets to see just how destroyed I am afterwards. Mm. Um, I will still have, like if I have flashbacks or panic attacks, I have sometimes like a period of about a month where I'm not okay. I am not okay at all. And the people in my corner, Tim, my coach, like he's seen it all. He's been there through the whole journey. He's seen me tackle some of the worst months of my life in terms of just my flashbacks, nightmares, mental health on that front. Um, so they're all the people I turn to at those point in time. But it still just is that perspective of going compared to where I was. I am like on the way to exactly where I want to be. And I do afterwards, I try and treat the flashbacks or the panic attacks or anything like that that come along from the PTSD, try and treat them as that little reminder to keep looking after myself, to stick with the journey, to keep working on things and not just let things slide. Because um, it would be all too easy to kind of go, okay, we're going to try and just shut that door. I'll just deal with panic attacks and flashbacks when they come. I'm not going to talk to a psych about it though. I don't need to open up old doors because it is the hardest thing ever to do where it's like, I'm feeling good that day. I'm about to walk into a psych's office and open up old wounds to try and work through them from the ground up mm. rather than, and the way he puts it is I, I approach them and I tackle them when I feel good 
and it's my choice to do so rather than let them just come back to me and because it is those little things that get to me like the fact that a certain song can come on the radio and all of a sudden I can't breathe Mm -hmm. and I'm really struggling to see and I'm like I'll be full-on hyperventilating or at the smell of a certain cologne or things like that from past history of abuse like it's those sorts of things that do still I have to be very like not careful of I'm not careful of them because I I don't want to live my life around avoidance. Now I'll admit there's certain things that I can't, that I have to avoid because, or I still feel I have to avoid. We're working on that one. I'm doing full like exposure therapy, but mm. every other aspect of my life then creates the space for me to tackle it. Mm. So I'm incredibly thankful still for where I'm at. And I'm recognizing that I've got a long way to go in terms of fully getting through those sorts of things and not having, not being sidelined by such simple, seemingly simple things. But at the same time, I'm living a pretty damn good life. So I'm incredibly happy. Like I'm happy, but still struggling. The two come together. <laughs> Look, I love, <laughs> I love the perspective and I love the hard work. I think you're doing an incredible job and it's great to listen to, that's for sure. Um, I'd just like to, I guess, wrap up by, by working out what's going on in uh, 2022 for, for Simone. What's, uh, what's next on the agenda? A lot, a lot, a lot. Um, so I'm... Um, with Solomon, I'll be doing a lot more work with them um, this year. So that will be awesome. Um, I'm actually off. I don't know when this one comes out, but I'll be off next week to Sullivan Running Camp. Mm. Um, so that's when Annecy and Cabo Verde um, for training camp. That's only for a couple of weeks. But then all things are geared towards Golden Trail World Series again. Mm-hmm. So between Easter and August, I'll just be training the house down. There might be a couple of events in there, but they're all kind of building towards I'm doing four races on the Golden Trail World Series circuit, starting with um, one in Norway and then back to Sierra Zanal and then two in America mm-hmm. um, with the aim of qualifying for the final in Madeira yeah. uh, before hopefully on the way home, a trip to World Champs in um, Thailand. World, yeah, it's the it. first year that the World Mountain and Trail Running Champs are like combined. It was meant to happen two years ago, but COVID. Um, so, yeah, pretty much for me, my entire year is geared around August to November. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have a, a good solid period off once I get back um, to try and revamp myself or like just refresh everything. Yeah. But um, August, November, I'm overseas mm-hmm. racing. So, spectacular. Towards that. I love it. I love uh, being able to be somewhat confident that all these things will go ahead now too. It's uh, it's an exactly. amazing place to be. Oh, I'm so excited for you. That's that's incredible. Uh, look, thank you so much for your time today, Simone. Um, no, you're a you know you're studying biomed. You're a run coach. You're a PT. You're a you know professional athlete. Where where's the best place for people to uh to to contact you or to pick your brain and all things running? Um. Instagram is the only social media that I actually keep up with. Um, so Instagram, my Instagram handle is the flying brick underscore. Um, but I also have a website, uh, stillwerise.com.au. And that has my contact details. It also just has a whole heap of other info and blogs that might help anyone. But um, yeah, those two are probably yes. the best spots. Perfect. Um, and there's, I've had a good look at the website. There's some great info on there. So by all means, jump on and check out check out what uh, Simone's been up to. Wait for it to get into brick mode in uh, in August over in over in Europe. <laughs> Can't wait yep. to see what you can achieve. I'm, I'm stoked for you. Well, yeah, thanks again, Simone, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look look forward to seeing those results pages. Yep, yep. I'll post all the links to our how to follow along. Unreal. Thank you. Yeah.